Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Me to Mark chapter number 10. Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark and chapter number 10. If you'll find your place there in God's Word, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be in verse number 32. Down to verse number 45, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to verse 45. If you don't have your Bible with you this morning, there should be one, perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter 10 this morning. If you found your place and if you're willing and able, stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter number 10. Amanda and I will have been married for 22 years this June. I had to count up all the time just to make sure I got the day right. Nothing nothing worse than saying 21 when it was 22. When we got married, we um, went to this resort while we were away on our honeymoon. It was first class. People were waiting on you hand and foot. It was, the, it was the kind of place where when you, you came into your hotel room, they had these little swans and animals made out of the towels that were sitting there on the counter or the edge of the bed. It's pretty nice. We went down to the, to the hotel pool. You had a little bell you could ring. You ring the bell. Somebody just comes running up to you to give you whatever you need. I'm thinking, wow, this marriage thing is nice. That was the first week of marriage. So I tried that same thing on my second week of marriage. Came home from work. I said, hey, where are the swan towels on the bed? I said, where's my little bell that I can ring and you'll just bring me whatever I ask for? Amanda informed me that the only ringing that would be going off is the sound of the pan that she was throwing it at my head as I demanded my tea. But it's true, isn't it? We are tempted to think because of our pride and our selfishness. We're tempted to wake up in the morning thinking that everyone should bend their life around me. Everyone else should wake up thinking, what do I want? What do I need? How do I want them to live? The reality is, in this passage before us, Jesus is confronting that. He's confronting it in the disciples, but he's, he's confronting it in you and I just the same. He's giving them a paradigm, a paradigm shift. And Jesus is going to say, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. This is a passage of scripture that's much easier to read than it is to actually practice. But if you and I would make the greatest impact in this world for God and for good, it will be not because we have a servant, but because we are a servant. That's what he's confronting us with this morning. Are you seeing life as just one big attempt to have as many servants as you can? Or do you see this life as an opportunity 
to serve. Look at verse number 32. It begins like this. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and he began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Saying, behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priest and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death. And they shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him. And they shall scourge him. And they shall spit upon him. And shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. And James and John. You ever notice this about the disciples? The disciples always get it wrong. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him and they say, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit on thy right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. And Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left hand is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John, of course. But Jesus called them unto him, and he saith to them, Ye know what they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them. Their, their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. Whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. The, the word there is your servant. And whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. And even so, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Our Heavenly Father, use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> when we think of greatness, we are tempted to think of greatness or success as moving up in the world. And the principle that we are seeing here is that the worldly idea of status or privilege or success is not the, the same idea that God has for His people. What the world calls status and success actually, according to the words of Jesus, has no place in the hearts of God's people. He says in verse 33... It shall not be among you. 
In other words, the people of God are not to see success the same way that the world sees success. The world sees success as status, popularity, money, influence. God's people, in turn, are not to see success in that way. They are, they are to see success. They are to see greatness as service. The scripture teaches you and teaches me that God hates pride. In fact, God punishes pride. But God honors humility. The world says, lift yourself up at all costs. Defend yourself. Promote yourself. Push yourself. And God says, be humble. Think less of yourself. And one of the great lies that exist in every Christian generation is that the more the people of God look like, sound like, act like, walk like, talk like, live like the world, well then the better that we can reach the world. But the New Testament does not bear record to that and neither does church history. Instead, church history shows us what the New Testament teaches, namely that God's people are always at their most effective when they are living countercultural. And there is no greater counterculture. There is no greater anti-culture. There is no greater opposite culture than to live as a servant. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, greatness is not how many servants you have. Greatness is are you being a servant? Now you might have thought that the disciples had already heard this sermon. They've already figured this out. Of course, this should be the case. Jesus preaches something very similar to this in chapter number 8. Jesus preaches something very similar to this in chapter number 9. And now Jesus again returns to this very same idea. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. Jesus is coming to serve. And the way in which Jesus served us is by his vicarious life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. The disciples are much like you and me. We hear the same message over and over again. It just has a hard time penetrating our brains and our hearts. And so Jesus goes this time a step farther and he is teaching the disciples where true humility comes from. And that's what he's showing us. He's showing us three things about humility in this passage. Three ways in which we can actually live humility out in our lives. So first, humility comes in thinking about Christ's willing sacrifice on the cross. That is what he is saying in verse number two, notice, or verse number 32. Notice he says, and while they were on their way going up to Jerusalem, Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? You should circle those two words. They were amazed and they were Afraid. They were both of these things at the exact same time. And Jesus is speed walking toward Jerusalem, the Bible says. And the Bible teaches us in other passages that they're, they're following right in line behind Jesus. But the reason why they are both afraid and amazed is because they're amazed 
at Jesus having resolutely set his face like a flint to get to Jerusalem. That's what Luke tells us about the same story. That Jesus is, is persistent, he's courageous in moving toward Jerusalem. He's resolved on the issue. Nothing will stop him from getting there. But, but they are afraid... At the same time that they are amazed at his courage, they are afraid for his future. Because it is at Jerusalem where the most amount of people with the most amount of power want to do him the most amount of damage. And Jesus is resolute on getting there. This is why they are amazed and afraid. They're amazed because... He is resolute. He's firm on getting there. They're afraid because they know what awaits him while he arrives. So he knows this about them. He reads their heart. And by the way, Jesus knows the intent of your heart just the same. You can say a lot of things with your mouth. You can go a lot of places with your feet. But Jesus reads your heart. That's what's happening in verse 32. Jesus reads their heart. He knows what they're thinking. And so he says to them, behold, we go to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and to condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and they shall scourge him, and they shall spit upon him, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now that's not really comforting, is it? And Jesus doesn't calm their fears by saying, listen, I know you're worried about what's going to happen to me once I get to Jerusalem. But don't worry, it's not going to be that bad. It'll turn out okay. No, Jesus doesn't tell them that. And Jesus tells them exactly what awaits him while he's there and he knows what awaits them. You know, one of the best ways to fight pride and cultivate humility in your life is to think about the great sacrifice that Christ paid for us on the cross. Think about how Christ humbled himself for us. Think about how he submitted himself obediently to the will of the Father so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins, so that you and I could be made right with God, so that you and I could have a home in heaven. Think of the pain that Christ felt. Think of the blood that Christ shed. Think of the wrath that Christ carried on our behalf. And if you're saying this morning, well, Dave, that, 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 that's, that's, that, that sounds depressing. Why would you tell us to be thinking about that? And the answer is because it is not depressing. It is, in fact, humbling. It shouldn't depress you, but it should humble you. It is impossible to lift yourself up in pride while you are thinking of the humility of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. The cross of Christ crushes human pride. It flattens it. It ruins it. It destroys it. And that is what Jesus is saying to them while they are lifted up in pride, while they are thinking of their own greatness, while they are thinking of their own position, while they are thinking of their own awesomeness. And Jesus is reminding them of his love for them, his willingness, sacrifice for them. Humble servants constantly remind themselves of the sacrifice of their humble Savior. And we will never understand the depth of God's love without fully understanding 
the depth of his sacrifice. You should understand this. Godly love is most genuinely demonstrated through willing sacrifice. Godly love is most vividly demonstrated through willing sacrifice. Godly love is demonstrated through sacrifice. This is what the Bible is teaching you and me over and over again. It is telling us in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that word commended is an interesting word. It literally means proved. It means, it means showcased his love. He, he, he showcased his love. He showed off his love when? When did God show off his love? He showed it off when Christ died on the cross for sinners, for people like you and me. God showcased, he commended, he proved his love toward us. How did he prove his love? Godly love is demonstrated through a willing sacrifice for you and for me. John chapter 3, verse number 16, perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You want to see how God loves the world? God loves the world in that he gave his only son for you and for me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, the author of Hebrews writes, Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This was joy to Jesus. The cross was joy for him. However difficult it was, however heartbreaking it was, however gut-wrenching it was for him, however much pain and the excruciating pain that he felt, he considered it joy. Why? Because it demonstrated his love for you and his love for me. And God's love for us is most vividly, it's most clearly seen. In that he sacrifices for us. And Jesus was not obligated to save us. Jesus was not forced to forgive us of our sin. Godly love is most genuinely demonstrated in willing sacrifice. So when God's people are full of God's spirit. And they hear of God's sacrifice of his own son, Jesus, what does that do in our heart? It humbles us. It convicts us of our sin. It fuels our desire to please God. It fuels our desire to serve his people. It, it causes love to grow. It causes humility to cultivate. It causes sacrifice and service to step in. Humility is thinking about Christ's willing sacrifice. And Jesus has set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and he knows what awaits him. And he willingly walks into it for you and for me. But second, humility is thinking about Christ's meaningful suffering. 
That's what's happening in verse number 35 to verse number 37. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come to Jesus and they say, so think of this, Jesus has just told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be sacrificed, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be spit upon, I'm going to, and, and then I'm going to raise from the dead, I'm going to do this. And all James and John are thinking about is where will their seats be in the kingdom? And Jesus says, or verse 35, James and John say to Jesus, rather, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Your kids ever played this game with you? Your kids come to you and say, Dad, will you do something for me? Hmm, well, it depends on what you're asking me to do. <laughs> and will, will you give me whatever I ask you? Uh, it depends on what you're asking me. So they come to Jesus and say, will, will you do for us whatever we ask? Jesus, wise, saying, what are you asking Verse 37 then, grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left in thy, in thy glory. The cross is God's x-ray that reveals the human heart. The message of the cross shows us just how filled with self-centeredness and pride and arrogance we, we really are. Jesus has told them what he is going to do. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to raise from the dead. The Son of God will suffer for sinners. That's humility. And what do they want? They want to be lifted up. They want seats of honor. They want power. They want influence. Nothing shows our pride quite as much as needing the, the prominent positions. Nothing shows how prideful we are as much as how much our hearts really need to be recognized. We need people to affirm us. We need people to pat us on the back. We need people to tell us it's all going to be okay. And that's what's happening here with the disciples now, before we get down on the disciples too much, how many times are you and I stuck on self? We're stuck on what we think, stuck on what we want, stuck on what we deserve. The reality is we have the same problem today that they had. Which is that we are much more interested in the glory of the Christian faith than we are in the serving of the Christian faith. But you will find in the Bible that the pathway to glory is always the pathway through serving. So Jesus is telling them this. Jesus says in verse number 38, look at it with me. He says, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Can ye be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So we need to say something here about this, 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 these images that he is giving them. Drinking of the cup and being baptized are very powerful metaphors. Drinking of the cup and being baptized are referring to Jesus' suffering. So when he says, drinking of the cup, it's a way of saying he's taking it all in. He's absorbing it all. He's, he's going to fully absorb something. What is the something he's going to fully absorb? What is the something he's going to fully take in? It is the sacrificial death on the cross. So he's talking about suffering. He's saying, I'm going to take all the way in suffering for sin, which, is, which I am doing for you. 
And then he says something of the baptism. And the baptism he is talking about is, is not the kind of baptism that we have here. He, he's not talking about the baptism that we do in the baptistry. He's not saying, can you be baptized in a church building, in a tank of water, and be baptized? The word baptized literally means dunked, immersed, brought under. That's, that's the idea of, of baptized. So he's saying, I am going to be brought under. I am going to be immersed. I am going to be dunked. Can you be can you be dunked in what I am being dunked in? Which is the suffering of Jesus on the cross. So he's talking his, all. He's talking essentially here, not of the baptism and not of the cup. He, he's talking in, in metaphors of saying, I'm taking in God's suffering for you. Can you do that? I'm being dunked in suffering for you. Can you do that? The death of Jesus was a cup that had to be drank the cross of Jesus was a baptism of which he had to be totally immersed in. Did James and John understand that? No. They don't understand what Jesus is talking to. Their eyes are not spiritual to see spiritual truth. So he said, which is evident in verse number 39, they say to him, we can. They're all too quick answers reveal that they don't really understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't fully grasp it, they, don't have a, they don't have a solid understanding of themselves. Watch, this is important. They don't have a solid understanding of themselves. They don't realize exactly what it is that they need. They, they assume they can go through what Jesus is going through. And they cannot. Why? Because they are sinners and Christ isn't. And Christ is coming to save sinful men of which they are a part of, of which I am a part of, of which you are a part of. The Bible is teaching us this, that we have all sinned and gone astray. The Bible, the Bible is teaching us over and over, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We're all sinners. You're aware of your own sin, are you not? And certainly you're not sitting here this, this, this morning thinking, well, well, Dave, I don't have any sin. I, I, I've never sinned. I, I've always done everything I've sh I, I should, and I, I've never done anything that I shouldn't. And, and even if you've never done anything you shouldn't, have you always done everything you should? These are, these are the full understanding of sin. Sin of commission. Deeds we've actually done. Words we've actually said. Places we've actually gone. Things we've actually looked at. And then deeds, sins of omission. When, when we knew we should have done something but didn't. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. To him, the Bible is saying, it is sin. So certainly you're not prepared to sit here this morning and think, well, I have no sin. Certainly you're wise enough, you're mature enough to understand that you have sinned and I have sinned. Just as the Bible is telling us, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But here's what we do with our sin. Since we all know we have it, we, we have to minimize it. So we have to say things like, well, I know somebody who's a worse sinner than me. So yeah, I, I've done some stuff I shouldn't do, but I haven't, done as, I haven't done as many bad things as other people that I know. How many of you know a sinner who's a bigger sinner than you? 
How many of you are sitting by the sinner who's a bigger sinner than you? No, don't, don't point him. Don't point him out. Don't point him out. That would not be polite. Of course this is true. And so what we do is we say things in our own hearts and we convince ourselves that God is somehow going to grade us on the curve. But this is the problem, friend. God is not going to grade you according to me and God is not going to grade me according to you. No, God holds us all to the standard of his law and his son of which we all come completely short. We've all come short of the glory of God. And as a result of this, as a result of sin, sin has broken our world. The Bible says that the wages, that, that's an interesting word, the word wage, you think of minimum wage. So literally is payment. The payment or the cost of sin, the Bible is saying, is death. The wages of sin is death, which means this, that sin broke our world. The reason there is death is because of sin. The reason there is heartbreak is because of sin. The reason there is cancer is because of sin. The reason there are hurricanes or tornadoes and earthquakes is because of sin. That this world in which we live is not the world in which God intended for us to live. But because of sin, sin has broken the world in which we live. Sin has broken you and I because we have committed it personally. And this is the life that we are sentenced to live here and now. And should you and I die in our sin, we die separated from God. We die removed from God. And if you die separated from God, the Bible is saying that you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Which is why God sent Jesus into the world. God sent Jesus into the world to make it possible for sinners like you and me, like James and John, like all of us. He is making it possible for us to get to him, to be made right with him, to have communion and fellowship with him, to be made right with God, our Father, and to spend eternity with God forever. But that is only possible through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot get to God any other way. This is what Jesus is saying in the book of John. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. No amount of religiousness. No amount of morality. No amount of civility. No amount of helping the poor or feeding the hungry. No amount of clothing the needy. None of this will do. Our religion, it is filthy rags in front of God who is righteous and pure and holy and he demands that very same thing from me and from you and yet we stand separated from God in our sin so God sent Jesus into this world to die for our sin to drink a cup to be baptized for you and for me on the cross and this is the greatest news of all that he did not stay dead but that he rose victoriously from the dead the Bible is teaching there that he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God and there Jesus sits right now ever making intercession for us. That word intercession is a very interesting word. It literally means Jesus and God are praying. Jesus and God are talking. Jesus and God are in conversation right now. And you know what they are talking about? They're talking about you. Are you not seeing how much he loves you? Are you not seeing his great sacrifice for you? He demonstrated his love while we were his enemies running from him, living for ourselves, 
taking on ourselves pride and arrogance and selfishness, just like James and John, thinking that we could somehow do this on our own. Christ, Christ is dying in our place. And when you think of that, the cross of Christ flattens us. The cross of Christ humbles us. Humility. Humility then is thinking of Christ's meaningful suffering. Christ's meaningful suffering on the cross. Look what he's saying to them then. Verse number 39. They say unto him, we can. And Jesus replies, well, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with, where, baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give. But it is given for, to them for whom it is prepared. It, it, notice what he is saying to them here. He is saying, I am suffering for your sin as the only way for which you can be made right with God. But you need to understand that you will suffer in this life. Suffering is a part of our life. Suffering, however, for the Christian is not meaningless. It's meaningful. Romans 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. So Paul here is not mitigating suffering. He's not, he's not making light of your suffering. He's not saying, hey, just tough it up, throw some dirt on it, put a Band-Aid on it and move on. No, no, he's saying, of course we suffer in this life. And suffering is suffering. Pain is pain. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. It hurts, it wounds. But what Paul is saying is, in comparison to eternity, in comparison to the glory that is there, your suffering that is here is just a moment longer. And let us remind ourselves of this as Christians. That this experience of knowing Jesus, this experience of being made right with God, of being transformed and is transforming the way in which we see the world. That we do not value the things that the world values. We do not love the things that the world loves. This world is not our home. We're here just for a little while. And we spend millions and millions and millions and millions of years someplace other than right here. And yet most Christians are not thinking at all about eternity. They're only thinking about the few brief years we get here, which James is telling you, and James is telling me, it's a, it's a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it vanisheth away. But you and I are spending millions and millions and millions of years someplace other than here. And yet most Christians are not even thinking of this. But when you do think of it, it provides you a joy that is unassailable. Amen. It, it, it provides you a joy that is unable to be defeated. That is, that's what the word is unassailable means. It provides you a joy that is unable to be defeated. It's not a joy that's just 
so joyful that I never cry. No, 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 this is the strange paradox. It's a joy that although I cry, I know that there is something that transcends whatever I am experiencing here and now. The Christian experience is not an experience that is removed from suffering. The Christian experience is an experience that knows a better day is coming. A better day is coming. And that is what Jesus is telling John and that is what Jesus is telling James. We cannot possibly open up all of this this morning, but I would simply tell you this. Suffering, what Jesus is helping us understand, suffering is a part of the Christian life. Suffering in its own unique way is preparation for future glory. And suffering is permitted by God. So simply because we suffer, we should not assume that God is mad at us in some way. Or that God is using suffering as a way to separate us from himself. No, 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 no. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come can separate me from the love in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you understand? God is not using suffering as a tool to like get at you. No, 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 no. He is using your suffering as a way to shape you and mold you and fashion you into who he wants you to be, which is the image of his son in this world so that men would see you and glorify your father, which is in heaven. For the Christian, suffering is not meaningless. Suffering is meaningful. But you cannot suffer if you do not have humility. Because in your pride and your selfishness, you are always demanding for things to go your way. But humility says, not my way, yours. And there's a third thought here. And that is this, that humility is following Christ's example of serving. It's really how the text ends. Look at verse 41. Then the, the ten heard it and they began to be much displeased with James and John. Just make a note of this. I, I don't have time this morning, but just make a note. Pride always brings with it contention. Pride always brings with it jealousy and bickering and fighting. It's just pride. You got a problem with a brother or sister, it's because of pride. Solomon is telling you this. The wisest man in all the world, he is telling you this. He is telling you, only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. So if you're living in the house of contention, you got there by driving down pride lane. You got there by driving down pride lane. We find ourselves saying things like, well, I would never treat somebody like he treated me. This is pride because in our sinfulness, we would. Without the help of Christ, we would. Without his spirit, we would. Do you see? Well, pastor, you don't know what my wife is like or you don't know what my husband is like. I don't, I don't have to. I know if you're living in the house of contention, you got there by driving down pride lane. 
So we should be following Christ's example in this way. So verse 42, Jesus called, to him, called them to him and he says this, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, for their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. That literally means your servant. And whosoever will be chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So watch. In the world, it's more important. The more important you are, are the more people who will be serving you. But not in Christ's kingdom. In Christ's kingdom, the more important you are, the more people you will be serving. In the world's kingdom, they say, well, you're great by counting up all the people who serve you. In Christ's kingdom, he says, greatness is understood by how many people you are serving. Service is powerful. It's powerful when it's lived out in the lives of others. People need to understand arguments that's true. People need to see the benefit of a good argument. That's true. People need reason. Yes. It's hard to exaggerate though. The power for good. That a thoroughly Christian man or woman can have. When they simply try to serve the people that God has placed in and throughout their lives. Whole communities can see that husbands and wives are loving each other. They're honoring each other. They're devoted and faithful to one another. That they're finding fulfillment and satisfaction in one another. They see their children growing up in security. In a loving and a disciplined home. They see a family that's not being turned onto itself. Arguing and fighting and bickering. But they see a family being turned outward. Entertaining strangers. Welcoming guests keeping an open home, seeking to get involved in the community. One Christian nurse in a hospital, one Christian teacher in a school, one Christian at a shop or a factory or an office can make all the difference for God and good. Christians are marked people. And the world is watching. And God's way of changing our world is to plant in this world right now men and women who have different values, different standards, a different understanding of joy, different goals. And our hope is that the world is watching. And our hope is that they will see those differences. And our hope is that they will glorify our Father which is in heaven as a result. So I end, I end where we began. Do you want to have a servant? Or are you trying to be a servant? Do you want to have a servant? Or are you trying to be a servant?